Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for all the blessings that you give us. Father, even in the weather today, we see your mighty hand. Father, we know that you control all things. And Father, we are in awe of your power. And Father, we're also in awe of your grace. And it's the grace that you sent to us through your son, Jesus Christ, that brings us here today. And Father, we thank you for allowing us to partake in that faith so we can stand before you whole, complete, cleansed. Father, we thank you for looking on us as your children, as your adopted sons and daughters. And Father, we just pray that everything that we do today will bring you glory and honor. Pray, Father, that you'll help us be people who take your light into the world around us so that others can come to know you and your son and the grace that's available through him. And Father, we pray all these things through Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue our study of the book of James. As we've been talking about, James is a letter written by Jesus' younger brother. James, a man who was transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from an embarrassed unbeliever into the leader of Jesus' church in Jerusalem. And James wrote this letter as a concerned father to his scattered and his harassed children. It's a letter that's full of advice, and it's a letter that's full of counsel, and it's a letter that is as relevant to us today as it was to those who first read it almost 2,000 years ago. Last week, we saw that the first concern that James addressed in his letter was how his children, now that they're separated from their original church family, now that they're separated from their mentors and their leaders in the church, how would they deal with the trials that come to them in life? How would they deal with those inevitable stresses of life that are common to everybody? Stresses that range from the merely irritating to the completely devastating. And James was concerned because he knew that life's trials can wear us down to the point where we start asking questions. We start doubting God. We start asking questions like, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Or even more strongly, why is God doing this to me? And we saw that James's counsel was that Christians should respond to life's trials with joy. Consider it all joy when you face trials. And on the surface, we saw that that seems like kind of strange advice. Strange advice from James. But we need to understand that James wasn't counseling, that Christians should just put on their happy faces and smile through the trials. Instead, James is telling us that we can find joy in the fact that God is always with us in our trials. And we can find joy in knowing that he is eager to give us the wisdom that we need in order to make it through life's trials. And we can find joy in knowing that he works through our trials to make us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And we can find joy in knowing that when this temporary life with its temporary trials comes to an end, there's going to be a new life awaiting those who do endure. Let's listen once more to what James had to say about facing life's trials. James 1 and verse 2. He wrote, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, 
who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Move down to verse 12. James continues and says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. We see that James wants his dispersed and his harassed children to know that the way that they respond to their trials is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And the reason for James's concern becomes evident in verse 13 when his tone changes and his focus shifts. James' focus shifts from persevering through life's trials to persevering through Satan's temptations. Verse 13, James continues, he says, When tempted, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to to death. Verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he has created. James opened his letter focused on the dangers that come with life's trials. And he focused on the importance of enduring through life's trials because trials make us particularly vulnerable to the temptation to turn away from God and turn to sin. I think that probably rings true for all of us, doesn't it? We've probably all experienced that in our lives when we're being pressed and squeezed and overwhelmed by life's trials. When we're in the middle of things like financial struggles, when we're dealing with serious health issues, when we have marriage problems, those are times when we're prone to question God and we're prone to question his motives. And those are times that we're particularly vulnerable to the temptations that we encounter. See, we know that Satan often attacks when we've been weakened by our trials when our strength has been compromised by our struggles. That's what gave Satan such confidence that he could turn Job away from God. Most of you are probably familiar with the conversation that took place between God and Satan that we read about in the book of Job. In Job 1 and verse 8, the Lord says this. He's talking to Satan. He says, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. He's a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan replies, he says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand 
and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Do you hear Satan's confidence? Satan is absolutely convinced that the only reason that Job follows God, the only reason that Job obeys God is because God has given Job a pass. Because God has wrapped Job in that magic bubble wrap and Job never has to face any of life's trials. So Satan is certain that he can turn Job away from God. He is certain that Job's faith and obedience won't persevere through trials. Satan's thinking is, take away that magic bubble wrap and surely, surely, Job will curse God to his face. And we know what happens next in the stories. There's a series of unimaginable trials that destroy Job's wealth and destroy his family. And then Job responded this way. Chapter 1 and verse 20. Job tore his robe and he shaved his head and then he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, naked, or as my people say, naked, Naked I came from my father's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. But Satan wasn't through with Job just yet. He's now convinced that the reason that Job didn't turn away from God is because God didn't entirely remove the bubble wrap because he didn't allow Satan to actually physically harm Job. So in Job chapter 2 and verse 4, Satan says, Skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then in verse 7, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, And afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. And in verse 9, his wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Just curse God and die. And Job replied, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now that's perseverance, isn't it? It's remarkable perseverance. But Job's story isn't remarkable because he wasn't tempted. Job was tempted. And Job's story isn't remarkable because he didn't harbor any doubts or because he didn't have any questions or because he wasn't confused about what was happening to him. Job had doubts. Job had questions and Job was confused. But what makes Job's story remarkable is that he was able to ignore the voices. In Job's case, the literal voices. The voices that said, God is doing this to you. The voices that said, God is punishing you. The voices that said, God has turned away from you, and because he has turned away from you, you should turn away from him. Job's story is remarkable because he was able to ignore those voices. And here in the book of James, 
James tells us that our stories are like Job's story. Like Job, our response to life's trials, and there will be trials, our response to life's trials will will determine whether our suffering will prove to be a test to pass, a test to pass where our faith will be strengthened, or if our suffering will prove to be a temptation to sin, a temptation to turn away from God and turn to sin. For us, the question is, will we, in the midst of our trials, ignore the voices that say, God is doing this to you? Ignore the voices that say, God is punishing you. Ignore the voices that say, God has turned away from you, and because God has turned away from you, you should turn away from him. And James is deeply concerned. And he's deeply concerned because he knows that for Christians, temptations are like life's trials. They're a certainty. Temptations will come. And they will especially come when Satan sees that we have been weakened and when we've been made vulnerable by life's trials. And since temptations are inevitable, James wants his readers to know, he wants us to know exactly how temptations work. He wants us to know how they function. And the first thing that he wants us to understand is that temptations aren't sins. It isn't a sin to be tempted. Listen to what the author of Hebrews wrote. In chapter 4 and verse 14, he wrote this. He said, we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, like us, Jesus suffered. And like us, Jesus was made vulnerable by his trials. And like us, Jesus was tempted. And the Hebrews writer tells us he was tempted in every way. Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are. But Jesus persevered through his trials, and he persevered through his weaknesses, and he persevered through his temptations, and he did that without sinning. And the good news for us is that he's with us. And he gives us his grace, and he gives us his mercy to help us persevere with him through our trials and through our weaknesses and through our temptations. Jesus was tempted, and so are we. And those temptations aren't sins. What temptations are is they are enticements to sin. They're voices calling us to sin. To put it more graphically and to use some of the same language that James uses, temptations are mating calls. They're mating calls to our dark desires. They're mating calls to our desire to do sinful things. And James here says, don't do it. Don't answer temptation's mating call. And James also wants us to understand that God is not the one who is tempting us. 
temptation's mating call does not come from God. It comes from Satan. Can you think of anything more evil than enticing someone else to sin? Anything more evil than enticing someone else to sin? I don't know about you, but I have a much stronger reaction to someone who pulls others into sinful and destructive behavior than I do someone who engages in sinful and destructive behavior on their own. That's why, for example, most of us have a much bigger problem with the drug dealer than we do with the drug addict. Because that's someone who's drawing others into sinful and destructive behavior. And so James makes sure that we understand that God cannot be the source of our temptations. He can't be the source of temptation's evil mating call because he is incapable of evil. God is good. God is holy. He is not the source of our temptations. God doesn't tempt us. Satan does. But James also says that doesn't give us a free pass. He says that Satan may be the one who's doing the calling, but we're responsible for whether or not we answer the call. Satan also wants us to know that See, James also wants us to know that Satan doesn't cause us to sin. We bear that responsibility. Some of you who are old like me remember what Flip Wilson used to say. The devil made me do it. He's not the only one who says that. That's a common refrain that we hear. The devil made me do it. Well, the devil doesn't make us do it. Satan entices us. Satan calls us, Satan tempts us, but we don't have to take his call. Notice that James doesn't say that Satan drags us away from God. What he says is our own desires drag us away from God. We bear the responsibility of persevering with God even when tempted. But thanks be to God, we don't bear that responsibility alone. We don't have to do it with our own limited and often diminished powers because we have Jesus. We have a great high priest to help us through our temptations. And we have been given his spirit to give us strength when we're tempted. Listen to what else the Hebrews writer said in chapter 2 and verse 18. He said, because Jesus suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's us. And that's good news. We aren't alone. Our help comes from the Lord. Our help comes from the Lord who defeated Satan and who defeated death. Our help comes from the Lord. And thanks be to God who has given us Jesus Christ to help us through our trials and help us through our temptations. Because this truly is a matter of life and death. So we should never forget that because we are children of God, we are children of life. And because we were baptized with Christ, we were crucified with Christ. And since we have been crucified with Christ, we no longer live But it's Christ who lives within us. See, when we put our old selves to death, we chose God. 
We chose Christ Jesus. We chose life. And when our old selves died, it left room, it left space for our God to give birth to life in us through Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful metaphor. The thought of being born again, of having new life created within us and created by our God for us. It's beautiful to think that we are guilt-free. We've been born into a guilt-free life with Jesus Christ. And James says that's where we should stay because that's who we are. And James reminds us that our life or death choice is between that beautiful life with Christ or an ugly death with Satan. Because listening to temptation's mating call also leads to a birth, a very different kind of birth. See, when we answer that call and when temptation mates with our dark desires, it gives birth, but it gives birth to sin. And then sin gives birth to its sibling, and its sibling is death. It's eternal death. And James, our dear, concerned, older brother, wants us all to know that dealing with temptation is a matter of life and death. So he says, don't answer that mating call. So the question for us is, how do we deal with the temptations that do come our way? So I want to end with six different things that we as children of God and children of life, six things that we will do to deal with temptations mating call. So number one, how will we deal with temptation? Well, we'll deal with temptation by accepting personal responsibility. We will acknowledge that we have control over our own actions. And we have control over our own decisions. And we are the ones who choose whether we will listen to Jesus or whether we will listen to temptation's mating call. We'll be people who recognize it's our choice. The devil doesn't make us do it. Our friends don't make us do it. Circumstances don't make us do it. Our past doesn't make us do it. We will understand that nothing makes us answer temptation's mating call. Instead, it's a choice that we make. Number two, how will we deal with temptation? Well, we'll deal with temptation by nipping it right in the bud. At the very beginning. We won't flirt with it. We won't take just a few steps with it. We won't promise ourselves that we'll just have one conversation with temptation to see what it has to say. No, we'll be people who nip it in the bud. We'll stop it before it really even has a chance to start. Because we're people who recognize that temptation and sin have a life cycle that's all their own. We think about temptation and sin, it's, it's like a reproductive process. Temptation calls out to our desires and when we answer the call, our desires mate with the temptation and what's conceived. Sin. And what is given birth to? Death. Death. 
It's a reproductive process, and it's a really difficult reproductive process to stop once it's been allowed to start. And that's why we'll nip it in the bud. We'll nip it in the bud by not even picking up the phone to answer temptation's mating call. Number three, how will we deal with temptation? We'll deal with temptation by staying connected to our God. We won't try to deal with temptation on our own because we aren't that strong, but our God is. So we will never stop praying. We'll never stop praying for strength and we'll never stop praying for the wisdom that we need in order to get through life's temptations. We'll never stop immersing ourselves in God's word and we will always have songs of praise and worship to God on our lips. And we will be people who savor these opportunities. These opportunities that we're taking part in right now. We will savor those opportunities to come together with other children of God. Other children of life. To savor and feast on his presence. And we'll do that together. Number four, how will we deal with temptation? Well, we'll deal with temptation by staying connected to God's people. See, God never intended for us to do it alone. He gave us his church. That's why we have each other. Remember what it says in Ecclesiastes? It says, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily or quickly broken. I'm going to say to you, my brothers and my sisters, we have a lot more than three strands in our cord here at Netherwood Park. But for that to be effective, we have to be woven together. We have to be united. There's only strength in numbers if those numbers are looking out for each other and if those numbers are connected to each other. And that's why things like our Bible classes are so important. That's why our small groups are so important. That's why things like men's breakfasts and Wednesday night services and couples retreats and family encampment and vacation Bible school and outreach days and on and on it goes. That's why those things are so important for us as a body and for us as individuals. Not because we have to be a part of them. Not because we've been told to be a part of them but because we all need to be a part of them. We need to be a part of them for us individually, and we need to be a part of them for our brothers and sisters, and we need to be a part of them for this church, for this cord at Netherwood Park. We need to do this for ourselves and for each other so we as a church family will be a cord that can't be broken Number five, how will we deal with temptation? Well, we'll deal with temptation by knowing when to fight and knowing when to flee. And no, I'm not going to sing a Kenny Rogers song at this point. But there are times to look Satan right in the eye and say, get behind me, Satan. But there are also times when we're better off acting like Joseph and literally fleeing the scene of the temptation. And I believe that the time to fight 
It's when we know we are strong and when we know we aren't alone. Those times when we know that we are but one strand in a very strong cord. And I believe that the time to flee is when we know that we are weak and we know that we are alone. It's those times when we know that we're just one weak strand and we're all alone. Those are the times to flee temptation. But we also need to understand when we flee temptation, we need to not just flee from temptation. We need to flee to something. We need to flee to God. We need to flee to his people. We need to flee to life. And number six, how will we deal with temptation? Well, we'll deal with temptation by confessing our sins. We'll deal with temptation by repenting of our sins. We'll deal with temptation by accepting God's forgiveness. See, sin thrives on darkness. Sin flourishes when it's hidden. Sin multiplies when it's buried. Sin hates the light. And we'll deal with our continuing temptation by acknowledging those times when we have listened to temptation's call. We'll confess those times when we have let our desires drag us away from our God. We will bring our sins into the light because our God is eager to forgive. 1 John 1, 9, we're told if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There is power in forgiveness. There is strength in forgiveness. And our God is eager to forgive. Our God forgives because he is the God of life. He's not the God of death. And this is a matter of life and death. And we here at Netherwood Park are people who choose life. We're going to offer an invitation here in a minute. We will sing an invitation song and we'll all stand up and sometimes we're not sure exactly what to do during those times. But I want you to know that I want to really offer three different invitations. Three different invitations this morning. And there's a few different ways that you can respond to those invitations. While we're standing, you can walk to the front and you can let us know that you are responding to this invitation. If you're more comfortable doing so, you can walk to the back and ask for directions to room 104. A couple of our elders are in there and you can respond to them. And that would be a very appropriate thing for you to do. So listen carefully to my three different invitations this morning. Invitation number one. If you know, if you know that you are a strand, but you don't have a cord, if you're not connected to a church, if you don't have a group of people who you can strengthen and who, who can strengthen you, then we want you to know that we would love for you to be a part of this church a part of this family. We'd like for you to be a part of our cord because we need all the strands that we can get. So my invitation to you is, once you let us know that you would like to be a part of this family here? Invitation number two. You may be here and you haven't yet chosen life. 
You may not have chosen life by putting your old sinful self to death. You may not yet have gone into the waters of baptism, so you could be baptized with Jesus Christ, so you could be crucified with Jesus Christ. My invitation to you is, you should do that now. There's no time like the presence, like the present. You can't do it on your own. But God stands ready to give you strength. Jesus stands ready to walk with you. And they want to give you his spirit so he can dwell inside you, so he can guide you through life's temptation. So if you haven't done that, won't you let us know and won't you do that today? And then my third and final invitation. You may be here and you may be caught in that reproductive cycle of sin. And you may be finding it very hard to stop. And I want to tell you the best thing that you can do is to bring that sin to the light. Take it out of the darkness. Bring it to the light. Bring it to your brothers and sisters so they can pray for you. So we can take your request to God and so God can forgive you because he is eager to forgive you. So you can walk in the light like he always intended for you to walk in the light. So if you are caught in that cycle, won't you bring that sin to the light today? Whatever your needs are, won't you bring them to God today while we stand and while we sing? Sing.